0: Revelation 19. We've been going through this book since the beginning of the year, and we're coming down to the home stretch. The title of today's message is Return of the King. You know, one of the most stirring eras in English history involves the conquests and crusades of King Richard the Lionheart. It's said that in the year 1190... Richard left England for the Holy Land. And his goal was to push back the advance of the Muslim armies who had overtaken Jerusalem and to defeat the feared Muslim general Saladin. Well, while Richard was away in the Holy Land, his kingdom fell on bad times. He had a sly and greedy brother named John who usurped the throne and ruled over the people with great cruelty. And so the people of England suffered greatly under John's heavy hand. And the people longed for the return of their benevolent king, Richard, praying that he might come back and reclaim the throne before it was everlasting too late. Well, finally, after three long years of campaigning, after being imprisoned and traveling those many hundreds of miles, Richard returned to England and he marched straight for his throne. There was anticipated arrival, and many tales and legends are woven into the people of England during that time, one of which you know very well, the legend of Robin Hood. But as Richard returned, John's defenses tumbled like sandcastles in the surf. And when King Richard lay claim of his throne again, the people shouted with delight all across England, Long live the king! Bells from churches and cathedrals rang across England in celebration because the lion had returned. Now, in the book of Revelation, it explains that one day, a king greater than Richard is coming back to reclaim a kingdom greater than England. In fact, his name is Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he will take back his throne, he will judge every usurper, and he will establish his kingdom on the earth. In fact, I would submit to you that the return of Christ is that climactic moment of which all salvation history is moving towards. You see, the world is Christ by right of creation, he made it all. The world is Christ by right of Calvary. He redeemed it all. And the world is Christ by right of conquest, for he will come and reclaim it all. Now, in truth, the return of Christ is one of the bedrock doctrines taught in the Word of God. Scholars tell us that the Bible contains an astounding 1,845 prophecies about the second coming of Jesus. In fact, if you go to the Old Testament, you'll find that 17 books there in the Old Testament refer or echo the return of Christ. In the New Testament, 23 of the 27 books speak of Christ's return. What that means is that 7 out of every 10 chapters in the New Testament has something to say about His return. That's the equivalent of 1 out of every 30 verses. So it's almost impossible to read a chapter in the New Testament without some reference of Jesus' coming being there. In fact, Jesus spoke of His return on some 21 occasions. And what that means, when you boil it all down, is that the doctrine of Christ's second coming is second only to salvation as it is taught in the Bible. I heard about Adrian Rogers, the Long-time pastor there in Memphis, Tennessee, and at the Bellevue Baptist Church. He's gone on to be with the Lord. But I heard him tell a story that one day he was sitting in an airport waiting to catch his plane. And as he was waiting there, he noticed there was a man sitting in front of him with his eyes glued to a television screen. The news broadcast was reporting some bad news. And Adrian overheard the man as he shook his head. He said, what is this world coming to? And Dr. Rogers, not bashful, walked up to the man. he said, pardon sir, but the question is not what is this world coming to, but who is coming to this world? And then he proceeded to tell him about the gospel and the return of Jesus Christ. Now here in the second half of Revelation 19, we find that John describes... The return of Jesus in high definition. He will come vividly, suddenly, dramatically, gloriously, and triumphantly. I like what David Jeremiah wrote about this in one of his books. He said, quote, Revelation can be divided into three sections. At the beginning of the book, we see the world ruined by man. As we move on to the latter half of the tribulation period, he said, we witness the world ruled by Satan. But as we come to Christ's return at the end of the tribulation period, he said, we anticipate the world reclaimed by God. But before the earth can be reclaimed, it must be cleansed, he said. You wouldn't move into a house infested with rats without first exterminating the pests. And that is what Christ is going to do before he reclaims the earth. He must avenge the damage done to his perfect creation by wiping the rebels from His rightful inheritance. Now in Revelation 19, as we read here today, as we study, I want you to notice four essential components about this coming king. First, we notice in the first couple of verses, the king's appearance. The king's appearance. And you can read with me, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Drop down to verse 16 and look what it says there. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, if you've been paying attention throughout our study of this book, you'll notice this is the second time that heaven has been opened. We read about that in verse 11. Now, the first time that heaven was opened, it was so the church could rise up and join the Lord in glory. That happened in chapter 4 and verse 1. When the door is opened now in Revelation 19 and verse 11, we see that it is open to allow the Lord to ride out of heaven with the church down to the earth. So the first door, notice this, speaks of the rapture of the church, that first opening. And then the second opening, which we just read of, speaks of the return of Christ. Now it's important, friend, that you distinguish between the rapture and the return. Many people are confused about that. They want to conflate those two events into one. The Bible teaches very clearly that there are two separate events, you see, at the first time when the door opens, the church goes up to meet Christ in the air. The next time the heavens open, the church comes down and Christ comes to be on the earth with the church. At the rapture, Christ appears in the heavens for His church. At the return, Christ comes down with His church. The rapture commences the tribulation. The return concludes the tribulation. The rapture is not preceded by any signs We read about many signs taking place that precede the return. And then we see that the rapture is a private event. It will happen in secret, but the return will be a spectacular event. Every eye will see Him coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, as John has described the king's appearance here in these verses, he denotes two aspects of Christ. First off, he makes us pay attention to His designations. In fact, in this passage that we just read, Jesus is given three royal titles. Verse 11, He's called Faithful and True. In verse 13, He's called the Word of God. And in verse 16, Christ is referred to as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And each one of these titles carries with it a special significance. Faithful and True, that points to His integrity. Friend, Christ keeps every promise. He will fulfill every jot, every tittle. He'll dot every I. He'll cross every T of prophecy. Friend, nothing will be left undone. Faithful and true. That's His integrity. Then we see He's called the Word of God. That speaks of His ministry on the earth during His incarnation. What does the Bible say in John 1, that wonderful prologue? Verse 14, the Word became flesh. And what happened, church? He dwelt among us full of of grace and truth and then we see that he's also called king of kings that speaks of Christ's sovereignty and what that reminds us is that he will rule over every square inch of planet earth every drop of water in the sea every grain of sand on the earth Uh, Everything will be under his feet no maverick molecules in the universe of Jesus he will rule sovereignly but then we also see something about his dress you notice John spent time describing to us the articles of clothing that Christ is wearing. His appearance of this glorified Lord will cause the church to rise in triumph. Oh, but friend, it will cause the enemies of Christ to shriek with terror. Now, there could be no greater contrast between His first coming and His second coming when you look at what he is wearing in this passage. Why friend, the first time that he came, he was riding a lowly donkey through the streets of Jerusalem. That speaks of his humility. But friend, we read that when he comes again, he will be riding a white war stallion. That speaks of his royalty, friends. The first time he came, the Bible says that his eyes were filled with tears. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53.3 says. Oh, but friend, the next time he comes, the Bible says, his eyes will be flaming fire and he will cause tears to be shed among men who know of the promise of his coming and certain judgment. The first time He came, He bore that crown of thorns upon Him as He hung between heaven and earth on that cross. He was the victim the first time, but friend, the next time He comes, He'll be crowned with many crowns, wearing a diadem on His head. He's not the victim, He's the victor, friend. Do you know Him today as King of kings and Lord of lords? Friend, the first time He came, He was wrapped in those rags of poverty. Oh, He said the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay His head. Oh, but friend, the next time that He comes, He'll be wrapped in those royal robes, robes that will be dipped in blood, speaking not only of His shed blood on the cross, but friend, of the blood that He is going to shed when He comes to make war and bring justice on this earth. What a Savior we serve today. The King's appearance C.S. Lewis wrote a great series of children's books many years ago called The Chronicles of Narnia. I've read those books and I've seen the movies. They're wonderful. In those books, it's filled with all kinds of fantastic creatures. And it tells the story of four kids who are taken into a a magical adventure, the kingdom of Narnia. And in the purpose of writing that, C.S. Lewis was creating a modern allegory. He was telling children about Christ and he was doing so through an imaginative way and in those books Jesus Christ is pictured as a magnificent lion whose name is Aslan there's a section in those books where the children are having a conversation with some of their friends Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and they're asking them what's it going to be like when we finally meet Aslan what's it going to finally be like when we meet the king and the little girl Susan asked She said, I'm kind of nervous. I've never met a lion before. Is he safe? Miss Beaver paused for a moment and she said, Is he safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good and he is king, I tell you. And friend, I can't think of a better description of Jesus Christ as it pertains to this passage. He is good. He is righteous. He is just. He is loving. But friend, He is holy and He is righteous. And when He comes back a second time, He won't be safe. He'll be coming with a sword. Jesus is no pacifist, friend. He doesn't take sin and sweep it under the rug. There will be a payday someday. So we see the king's appearance. Then we see number two, the king's armies. And friend, it gets even better. Notice what verse 14 tells us about this passage. Verse 14, as we read, it said, The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Interesting. You ask the question, Who are these armies? The text gives us a clue when it describes the clothing. They are clothed in fine linen white and clean. This is the same description that's given of the bride of Christ just a few verses earlier in Revelation 19, verse 8. You can go look that up yourself. If that wasn't convincing enough, listen to the way Jude describes this very same scene. In Jude 14, 15, it says this, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, also saying, Behold, watch this, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His saints. Who's that, Church. Touch the person beside you and say, that's you. That's me. The Bible says, to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's a lot of ungodlies, isn't it? The fact is that we are wearing those white robes, and that entails something significant. Friend, if you know anything about that dress... We're not dressed for battle. That's not the armament of a soldier, is it? Why? Because we don't need to worry about soiling our garments. We will not be there as soldiers. We will be there as spectators. Jesus is the one who's going to fight this battle. And friend, we will have front row seats to His victory. I'm excited as I read that because the Bible says that the saints of God will be coming riding White horses. Any of you in here good at horseback riding? If you've never been on a horse before, you're going to get your chance. Friend, think about what that ride is going to be like when you leave the third heaven and you come through our solar system and you pass the Mars planet and then you pass the moon. Oh, there's the lunar landing. And then you come into our stratosphere and a sonic boom breaks across the earth and God's people return with Christ to rule and reign. Friend, have you picked out a name for your horse yet? (laughs) It's coming. I believe it, don't you? The king's armies... Then we see the king's armament, number three. The king's armament. His appearance, his armies. What kind of weapons will he have? Well, look at here in verse 15. Verse 15 says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath Of God the Almighty. Christ does not wage war the conventional way. He doesn't use bullets. He doesn't use bombs. He doesn't use soldiers and tanks. The Bible says that instead He will defeat His enemies with just a whisper. That's the power of the Word of God. Do you believe that there's power in the Word of God? If I didn't believe it, I wouldn't be up here. Hebrews 4.12 says, The Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. You know, when Christ created, He stood out on nothing. He spoke the words and the stars began to shine. The planets began to spin. And all of creation came together. And the Bible says in Hebrews 1.3 that He upholds the creation by the Word of His power He calmed the winds and the waves on Galilee on that storm-tossed night. He came walking across the water, got in the boat with His men, said, Peace be still, and it turned into a glassy pond. Friend, He healed the sick from a distance in John 4. When a little boy was sick many miles away, he merely spoke the word, and the Bible says, At that hour, He was healed He stood outside the grave of Lazarus. Been four days dead. The stench of death wafting out of that tomb. He said, Lazarus, come forth. And he came out of that tomb. Friend, Jesus just needs to merely speak the word. And it's a decree that is given. And it is done. Everything in creation obeys the word of God. Think about this. Christ is going to vanquish all of his foes. And he won't even have to lift a finger to do it. His Word will do more than all the nuclear weapons and all of the armies combined. And what you need to realize as we read this is this is not really a battle. The battle is over before it even starts. Now we read here in the passage in verse 15 that Jesus is coming to rule with a rod of iron. What does that mean? Well, it's actually an allusion to an Old Testament passage, a Messianic Psalm, Psalm chapter 2. Look at what it says in Psalm chapter 2 verse 8. It's actually a conversation between God the Father and the Son. Listen to what the Father says to the Son, verse 8, "...ask of me, and I will give to you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. And you shall..." There it is. "...break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel." So the idea of the rod in the Old Testament is always associated with judgment, with discipline, with correction... What does the proverb say? Spare the rod and you spoil the child. I knew a little thing about the rod meeting the backside, didn't you? The fact that these verses say that Jesus has a rod of iron points to the fact that He is bringing with Him severe, sudden, and sure judgment. There's no other way around it. This isn't Jesus meek and mild. This isn't Jesus of the precious moments figurines. This isn't the Jesus that your grandmother quilted and uh, put on a pillow. (laughs) Another symbol that Jesus used to describe His judgment here is notice what it says in verse 15. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Now, that's something that's foreign to you and I. We're moderns, and we don't get that. But people in John's day would have instantly recognized what that reference was all about. It goes back to their practice in the ancient world of how they harvested grapes. Then they brought them and put them in a great vat, and farmers would get in there barefoot, and they would begin to do the step. And as they stepped in that big vat of grapes... As they moved their foot up and down, the grapes would squish out. The juice would come out. And of course, as they made that motion, what would happen? The grape juice would splatter up. It would get on the sides of the vat. It would get on their clothes. And so the spattering of the grape juice is a picture of the splattering of blood that Jesus is going to cause when He returns to the earth to bring judgment. My goodness, what an image. I don't think you and I really have a mind to wrap around this idea of Jesus coming to bring the righteous judgment of God. Why? If you truly understood this, and you knew today that you were without Christ, that you were lost, oh friend, it wouldn't take much pleading to come to this altar. You would come today and you would find that Jesus is full of mercy and grace. But friend, what a moment this will be. Now, the location of this final slaughter, this judgment, the place of it is not given here. But we already know where it's going to happen because Revelation 16, 16 already told us. A place called Armageddon. Joel 3 is also another place that references this. Notice what Joel says in his Old Testament prophecy. He uses the imagery of the grape harvest again in Joel 3, verse 12 and 13. It says, Let the nations stir up themselves and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And by the way, that name Jehoshaphat means the Lord judges. For there I will sit and judge the surrounding nations. Here it is. Put a sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full, and the vats overflow, for their evil is great. Notice that the grapes of wrath have ripened now. And it's time for Jesus to bring about righteous indignation, righteous judgment. There's no more grace period from here on out. It's said of historians that in the year 1799, that great general Napoleon who tried to hold all of Europe in his hand, he made a journey to Megiddo there in the Middle East. And he stood upon a precipice and Napoleon looked out upon this vast plain Considering the enormity of that place, Armageddon, here's what Napoleon said. He said, all the armies of the world could maneuver their forces on this vast plain. There is no place in the whole world more suited for war than this. It is the most natural battleground on the whole earth. And friend, that's where all the enemies of God are going to be gathered in one place so that when Jesus Christ returns, He defeats them in one mighty blow. Listen to the way John Phillips describes this scene. He has a beautiful way of imagining it. Listen to this. He said, "...with pride and pomp, the armies march across the fertile plains of Megiddo, how the ground shakes to the beat of marching feet, and the skies screech with aircraft flying sorties. Fleets of battleships and aircraft carriers are on standby in the Red Sea, Persian Gulf, and Mediterranean. Amazing new weapons given to men by the beast are armed and ready. Then suddenly,
1: it'll all be over.
0: Field marshals and generals, admirals and air commanders, soldiers and sailors, rank and file, will crumple just as the fig tree withered as Jesus spoke to it. The blasphemous, loud-mouthed beast is silenced. The false prophet and the wonder-working windbag cannot compete with the supernatural display of Jesus' judgment. The pair of them are bundled up and cast headlong into eternal flames. My goodness, what a day. What a day it will be. Well, we're almost done. The king's apparel, the king's armies, the king's armament, and then lastly today, as we close, the king's avenging. Friend, there's no way to dress this passage up. You can't take a sow's ear and make it into a silk purse, so the old folks used to say. It's just full of judgment and gore and blood and guts. And this is our God. It says in verse 17, look at what happens the aftermath of this great slaughter. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. With a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who was in his presence, who had done signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of Him who was sitting on the horse. And Watch this. All the birds were gorged with their flesh. It kind of defies description, doesn't it? The aftermath of this battle could not be more gruesome. And what's interesting is if you study Revelation 19 from beginning to end, you notice that this chapter is bookended by two feasts. Last week when we opened the chapter, we were ushered into the great majestic marriage supper of the Lamb where everybody wants to be. But then at the end of this chapter, we're taken to the gruesome and gory supper of God. And the two couldn't be more different. Here at the supper of God, we read that the unclean birds, the vultures and the scavengers will pick the carcasses of the dead there on the plains of Armageddon. And you know what the reality is, friend? Today, you get to RSVP which meal you will be at. If you're in Christ, if you know Him as your Savior, praise God, the marriage supper of the Lamb. But friend, if you don't know Him, you'll be invited to the supper of God where you won't be the guest of honor, you'll be the main course. What a judgment. We see here that the beast and the false prophet, the ones who dreamt up this pipe dream of standing Against Christ, they're going to be the first ones thrown in the lake of fire. Friend, I don't know about you, but I'll applaud and say hallelujah, Jesus, when that happens. When Satan is bound and all the enemies that have been fighting against him are cast aside, what a day that will be. In fact, if you look ahead... Into the millennium, a thousand years From this very moment that we read in the text The Bible says that when Satan is finally cast in the lake of fire That the beast and the false prophet are still there They get a head start So what are we to make of all this? Perhaps I could bring it together With one final story It comes from the mission field Years ago there was a great missionary By the name of George Fisher He served in West Africa And he served in a country called Liberia, which in the time where he was serving there in the early 90s, there was a great civil war in that nation. It's estimated by historians that 200,000 people died in that terrible conflict. It was really a holocaust. Well, George Fisher, this missionary, talked about an interesting experience that took place as he was there teaching African ministerial students. These were young men who were being trained to be pastors and church leaders in that country. And they were studying prophecy on this day in the Bible college. And George Fisher says that they were reading a similar passage about God's judgment and the return of Christ, 2 Thessalonians 2.8. And that verse says this, The lawless one will be revealed, that's the Antichrist, whom the Lord, this is Jesus, will consume with the breath of His mouth and destroy with the brightness of His coming. Exactly what we just read about in Revelation 19. And as George Fisher was explaining the meaning of this passage to those eager students in front of them, one curious Bible student stood up and he said, Pastor, I just want to know one thing. When Jesus Christ comes back to the earth and He speaks the Word and defeats His enemies, what is He going to say? Now you think about that. Jesus has been gone now some 2,000 years from the earth, but we haven't heard his voice here on the earth. What is he going to say when he plants his feet here for the first time in millennia? Fisher said, the question took me by surprise. I had actually never thought of it. He said, I tried to sidestep the issue. I wanted to leave the question unanswered and to tell him we must not go past what the scriptures say. But he said, they kept pestering him and pestering him. And another man stood up and said, yeah, yeah, what's he going to say? Fisher said, as I thought about that moment, images kept coming through my mind. I thought about the suffering people all around me in the country of Liberia. The disease and the destruction. I thought about a dear friend of mine who was wrapped up and killed in the Civil War. He said, every day I saw how poverty robs men. I saw the haunted, vacant eyes of people who had lost hope in drug addiction and AIDS. All the suffering and all the bloodshed and all the trauma of life flashed through my mind, he said, as I stood there looking for an answer. The student asked one more time, and then he said, It was as if the Holy Spirit gave me a divine assistance in that moment. He says, I whispered very softly under my voice, Enough. <laughs> Enough. And the students said, what do you mean? What do you mean enough? And he explained. He says when Jesus Christ returns, He's going to say, enough suffering, enough starvation, enough terrorism, enough death, enough evil, enough indignity, enough of hopelessness and death, enough of sickness and disease, enough time. No more time to repent. Enough. Friend, as I thought about that story, I thought, wow, maybe Jesus is going to say that. But I know from the actions and from what the text tells us that that's exactly what's going to happen. The cup will be measured to the full. Time will have passed away. There will be no more bloodshed. No more man making war. No more blaspheming God. No more time. To repent do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today Do you know this Jesus the righteous King of Kings and the Lord of Lords as our musicians are coming we're gonna have a time of invitation today and I want you to think about this image of Christ that you see in your mind but then I also want you to know that he loved you and he gave his very life for you on the cross some 2,000 years ago He shed His blood for you and me. And if you don't know Him today in a real and personal way, this will be your moment to make that decision. Maybe there's some sin in your life or something that you know isn't pleasing to the Lord. This will be your time to repent. Your time to do business with God because this King is coming. And friend, when He comes, there'll be no time to clean things up. You have to be living in light of His coming right now.